Next, this month's special series focus on neurology and psychiatry. ReachMD welcomes an array of experts to explore developments in neuroscience and mental health. Sarcoidosis is a systemic disease most commonly affecting lung, lymph nodes, eyes, and skin. But neurosarcoidosis is not an infrequent complication. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. David Spiegel. Dr. Spiegel is an Associate Professor of Clinical Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and Director of the Consultation Liaison Service at Eastern Virginia Medical School. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Spiegel. Thank you, Leslie. Again, it's a pleasure to be here. It's been a while since, uh, since I've seen sarcoid, and I presume for our listeners as well. Can you just review it for us briefly, please? My pleasure. Sarcoid is a systemic illness of unknown cause, which people may remember is associated with non-cassiating granulomas, although 90% of clinical sarcoidosis is manifested by the organ systems you mentioned, which were intrathoracic lymph nodes, pulmonary involvement, skin and eye involvement. In terms of epidemiology, women are generally affected more than men. Adults less than 40 are generally affected, and it's most prevalent in not only African-Americans, which I think most of us who are in medicine uh, remember, but also Swedish and Danish-Americans. It's also common in that group as well. I remember Swedish and Danish people. Any idea why that is? Actually, no. I don't have any idea. I just think epidemiological evidence show that. I don't know if there's any correlation, certainly between the three groups, Swedish, Danish, and African-Americans. I'm finding tough to find any correlation with that. Now, how common is neurological involvement? Neurological involvement which actually may precede the diagnosis of sarcoid itself, has been reported to occur in anywhere between 5 to 10% of sarcoid patients. 5 to 10%, so not uncommon. No, not at all. Not, not at all. I mean, think about it. One of every 10 sarcoid patients can manifest neurosarcoidosis, so certainly it's something that psychiatrists and people in hospitals need to become at least somewhat familiar with. And what psychiatric symptoms might we see in those patients with neurosarcoid? In terms of just epidemiologically with psychiatric symptoms, they'll occur in a subset of neurosarcoid patients when there are parenchymal brain lesions, if you would. So in that particular population, about 20% of those patients will develop psychiatric symptoms, primarily delirium and psychosis. Now, that said, I will tell you that psychotic symptoms have also been the presenting feature of cases of neurosarcoid when there's just meningeal involvement or hypothalamic disease. So I'm wondering, when we see a patient, especially African-American or of Danish descent, that in the hospital presents with a nuance at delirium, when would we think about sarcoid? Well, I think one thing we would definitely do if someone has hyalur, you know, hyalur adenopathy on chest x-ray, and certainly chest x-ray is not uncommon, that's when it certainly would raise your eyebrows to start determining this as a possible case of neurosarcoid. Additionally, keep in mind that psychiatric illness generally doesn't, at least first onset, generally doesn't occur in older people. And by older people, I'm not insulting me, I hope, because I'm old, older than 40, but certainly most psychiatric illness like psychosis from schizophrenia or bipolar is going to happen in the late teens or the 20s. So psychiatric illness, at least first onset, is not an illness of your 40s. So if you start seeing someone who is psychotic, 
okay, in their 40s or even their 30s, you want to entertain something else other than pure psychiatric illness. Now, if they have a prior diagnosis of systemic or biopsy-proven sarcoid, that's going to certainly up the ante significantly in terms of your differential. Makes sense. Now, that brings up another question to me. Do these patients typically present de novo or do we already know that they have systemic sarcoidosis and the neurosarcoid is the new feature? I will tell you, well, certainly not the majority. I think most people would be surprised to know that a little bit over 30% of sarcoid patients will have neurosarcoid before the onset of systemic manifestations. And about that same number of cases will have the development of neurosarcoid at the same time as their systemic illness. So we're talking about a fair number of patients who have either the onset before or at the same time of the development of systemic symptoms. Now, how do you make the diagnosis? We don't go in and do a brain biopsy, do we? No, well, so I tell you right now, you or I wouldn't, that's for sure. <laughs> but um, and I'm telling you now, I definitely wouldn't. It's, it's interesting the way you come up with the diagnosis of uh, neurosarcoid. Certainly, you want to have the suggestive symptoms of neurosarcoid. And I will tell you that psychiatric symptoms aren't the most common manifestations. But for instance, cranial neuropathies are very common in patients with neurosarcoid, primarily the seventh nerve, which of course is the facial nerve palsy. So anything that resembles a bell palsy is going to start upping the ante. Additionally, the parenchymal brain lesion, which I did talk about, occur in about 50% of neurosarcoid patients. So an example of these may be a hypothalamic involvement, which can include endocrinopathies such as diabetes insipidus. They can have mass lesions and or encephalopathy up to 10% of patients, which is another fancy neurological name for delirium. Mass lesions, believe it or not, I guess in the right hands, if you would, can be biopsied. So if you biopsy a mass lesion, a tumor like substance in the brain, then that could give you definitive diagnosis of neurosarcoid, presuming you have the uh, other clinical manifestations of the illness. However, unfortunately, that usually isn't available to us. So what we need to do is go on a probable or high likelihood basis for neurosarcoid. So this would include one, the symptoms I just talked about with neurosarcoid with some type of laboratory support for CNS inflammation. So what might that be? Well, fortunately, we have MRIs, so that's going to show a uh, elevated uptake in the meninges or the brainstem. We also have access to spinal taps or lumbar punctures, which can show an elevated level of CSF protein or lymphocyte. And so the other thing you want to do with this type of illness is to exclude alternative diagnosis. And alternative diagnosis can include malignancies, metabolic diseases such as diabetes insipidus, or even cerebrovascular disease. So if you can rule out other alternative causes, have some of this laboratory support and have a clinical syndrome suggestive neurosarcoid, that's a good way to kind of rule it in. And that's the way I usually see them in the uh, medical surgical ward with a probable diagnosis. But I will tell you that probable diagnosis is enough to treat a patient. I'm not hearing any blood tests. Blood tests are a little less specific. The, the one blood test you can do is check for uh, an ACE, which would be angiotensin-converting enzyme. So you can check that as, I think, the primary blood test that you can use. Other than that, everything's got to go through the CSF. 
Okay. If you're new to our channel, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. David Spiegel from Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk. We are discussing neurosarcoidosis. And David, once you have made the diagnosis of neurosarcoid, what do you do? Well, the primary treatment is still going to be steroids, corticosteroids. But before we get into the corticosteroids, I will tell you it is a it is definitely a mixed bag with respect to treatment versus side effects. Well, I'm I'm thinking here here you have potentially a, a delirious psychotic patient and you're going to give them steroids. That doesn't seem like the greatest idea. It's interesting because the, the way treatment works, at least the way treatment works in the 21st century, is first of all there are no random controls trials for the optimal treatment of neurosarcoid. So even though we use corticosteroids as the mainstay for treatment, the response rate has been as low as 40% to one study that shows it as high as 90%. So in and of itself, they may not be the answer. So people also will start using the cytotoxic agents, methotrexate or azothioprine, which have a response rate of about 66% for those patients that don't respond to steroids. And then there is the immunosuppressive agent cyclophosphamide, which is given intravenously, which can also be used for refractory neurosarcoid. Now, that said, the, the other three agents I talked about, methotrexate, azothioprine, and cyclophosphamide, can all cause delirium in and of itself. And the question you asked, which I went through my roundabout way of getting there, is that absolutely steroids can cause mental status changes. And I refer the readers to a great, great study done, the Boston Collaborative Drug Surveillance Study, which is still still referred to this stage and was done in 1972. And what that uh, surveillance program did was, what is the rate of psychiatric illness as a result of steroids? And it's totally dose-dependent. If you have someone who gets prednisone or prednisone equivalents of less than 40 milligrams per day, the rate is still pretty low of about 1%. But once you increase the dosage to up to 80, from 40 to 80 milligrams per day, it goes up to about 5%. And then once you get above 80, it's about 20%. So again, it is definitely dose-dependent. Now, the most common symptoms of corticosteroids is depression and mania. So it's certainly not uncommon for a manic illness to develop, although depression seems to be somewhat more common. Now, in the little bit of time that we have left, can you give us just a quick case of patient maybe that you've seen with neurosarcoid that, that's real life? Yeah, and I actually had a patient on the service about two months ago. And like I said, he, he had biopsy-proven sarcoid through, I think, pulmonary involvement and totally developed these manic-type symptomatology where he had grandiose delusions, pressured speech, couldn't keep a conversation straight. And, of course, at that time, the person was in their 40s, and they're thinking the person may have had a bipolar disorder you know, and not neurosarcoid because, well, the guy has no history of bipolar, but let's face it, he's manic, and you see a manic patient, call a psychiatrist. As it turns out, the symptoms he had, he had other neurosarcoid symptoms, primarily, which wasn't picked up initially, was the cranial nerve, seven facial nerve palsy. So after I kind of picked that up on my neurological exam, I did, and without the history, without any psychiatric history, I kind of felt this, this needs to be more considered in terms of neurosarcoid. And as a result, they brought the neurologist in. Indeed, I think, again, it was a probable diagnosis because no one ever biopsied a brain mass or peripheral nerve or a cranial nerve, no one biopsy was a probable diagnosis, so patient was begun on steroids, corticosteroids. Now, 
taking that a step further, like I said, in terms of what steroids does, like you made that great point, the patient's illness actually got worse. The psychiatric illness actually got worse. Not the, the, the medical illness, the neurosarcoid, I'm sure, was getting better. But he became significantly more manic and psychotic to the point where he had to actually be restrained. So even though he was on antipsychotics to treat the corticosteroid-induced mania, they still had to continue it because of the neurosarcoid. The good news is eventually both were treated and the patient was eventually released from the hospital in Baylor Mental Health. So uh, clearly an example where a psychiatrist needs to work with the whole team to help both issues. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And fortunately, I have a pretty good relationship with many of the uh, consulting psychiatrists at EVMS. And so they have no hesitance to call me in no matter what time of day it is. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> well, that's why I have residents. So they'll, they'll take the late night call. That's right. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. Again, thank you very much for having us. I appreciate it. We've been talking with Dr. David Spiegel of Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, Virginia, about the presentation and treatment of neurosarcoidosis. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series Focus on Neurology and Psychiatry. For a program guide, complete list of shows, and podcasts, please visit us at ReachMD.com. And download ReachMD's free iPhone app, Medical Radio, to listen to the same live stream of ReachMD medical news and information, plus CME and thousands of searchable podcasts. Get the Medical Radio app today.